It's the Airhead 247 Podcast. The Airhead 247 Podcast, powered by Wedgetail Ignition Systems, state of the art ignition for your 247 Airhead. Proudly made in Australia by motorcyclists who love their BMWs. By the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who invite you to ride inspired. And Boxer2Valve.com, the premium supplier for all your airhead replacement parts. Now, let's get this thing fired up. Howdy, everybody. We're back at it on the Airhead 247 podcast. Let's start out with a note from Derek in Novato, California. He sent in a picture of his 95 PD Classic, noting that his model has yet to be nominated for a spot on the Mount Rushmore of 247 Airheads. Well, Derek, it's officially nominated, and I think your reasoning is sound. He notes this is a true last edition Airhead in classic black and chrome with the tank I affectionately call the Fuel Mule, meaning it holds over nine gallons of gasoline. In fact, I owned a 92 PD and would often fill the tank all the way to the top and then get home, drain out about four or five gallons and use all that fuel for my lawn equipment. Anyway, I agree with you, Derek. The 95 PD Classic is a worthy nomination for the Mount Rushmore of Airhead 247 motorcycles. Thanks for writing, Derek. Good to hear from you. And a reminder, you can drop us a note, airheads247 at hotmail.com. Well, I met this week's guest about 30 years ago, not long after I first arrived in Memphis, Tennessee. He kept my Slash 5, my 1977 RS, and a bunch of other bikes running when I was too young, inexperienced, and without tools or a garage to do it myself. As I got to know him a bit more, I found out he was also a spectacular bass player, and we ended up doing a number of gigs in and around Memphis together as the years went on. In addition to working as an independent mechanic, a motorcycle dealer, he's also known for his Norton drag bike and his expertise as a master head rebuilder and mechanic at Memphis Motor Works. Today, he's semi-retired, but still twisting wrenches on selected jobs and can be seen playing bass on Beale Street in downtown Memphis, Tennessee. The next two programs, they contain some airhead and motorcycle content, and you'll hear that a little bit more in part two. But for now, we'll listen to the story of Leo Goff, a life in mechanics, motorcycles, and music, this week on the Airhead 247 Podcast. All right, we're out in a undisclosed location uh, east of Memphis, Tennessee, talking with Leo Goff. And Leo, you and I have known each other, I was trying to do the math here, almost 30 years now, I think. Has it been that long? It's been that long. I was remembering the 84, first- 85. No, no, 91 or two. So we were introduced by a mutual friend, Michael Wishmeyer. He saw me working on, I had a slash, yeah, I had a slash five short wheelbase. I was in Midtown uh, here in Memphis. I lived down from the Barksdale restaurant. I remember where you live. And I was out there twisting wrenches, doing something. He said, and I didn't know him. He just pulls up on his K bike and he says, what are you doing? Yeah, just sitting there thinking, you got a problem with your bike? I said, yeah, I do. He's like, hold on, I'll be back. He goes to his house, comes back. He's like, call this guy, <laughs> Leo Goff. That's how we met. 
It was through Wishmeyer. I remember Wishmeyer and that K100. I yeah, think he had. that's right. So all those years ago, let me just say, you know, when I lived here in Memphis for 20 years, you helped. I mean, you kept my bikes running all that time and always available to help out. So always happy to help. Yeah. My I, buddies. Yeah. I and anybody. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So what I want to talk about is we'll get into some airhead stuff, obviously. Uh, but I want to set the scene for everybody who's not sort of familiar with you uh, or knows a little bit about you, knows wants to know a little bit more. Let's just start. Uh, tell me a little bit about when you started getting into bikes and motorcycles here in Memphis. I'm guessing that was the mid, early 60s. Somewhere. No, actually. Okay, tell the 50s. Me. Okay, t- yeah. So set the stage. I was, uh, I was actually raised, my dad died in 1949. And... Left my mother in lurch, so she moved back in with her mother and her two bachelor sons. These were my uncles. Okay. And uh, one of them was a merchant marine, and the other one had a uh, disability and, and couldn't work much. But they all, but they had a shop, a garage. They were always working on old cars and old motorcycles. Well, now my mother had eight other brothers and sisters. One of them was a mechanical engineer and he was married and lived all but he would always come see his mom my grandmother where I lived you know every weekend Saturday and Sunday and he always took an interest in what was going on there and everything he was a he was a very proficient mechanic and he restored old cars back then wow, so he was restoring cars in the 50s yes wow. and uh I'm talking about um my earliest recollections of being around cars and stuff when I would when I remember, let's see. I was seven, eight years old. Now maybe a little younger, but I got an interest in the things. And I was really into flying model airplanes and I and I got an interest in in souping up and doing high performance work on the little model airplane motors, you know, porting them and everything and doing all that. But anyway, but the two uncles that, that, that live there at the house, the one of them was a merchant marine and gone a lot, but the other one was always bringing home some kind of old junk car, motorcycle, or scooter, and putting it back there in the back and working on it. And they really, they were really shade tree. You know, I mean, instead of using, instead of grabbing a 916 wrench through something, they'd grab a crescent wrench or something, or a pair of pliers. Don't have to do it right. You just got to do it. Just got to do it and everything. Well, my uncle would come over, and he saw I was taking interest in this. And he said, well, what? Well, he said, well, what, what, what did Uncle Joe show you this, this, this week? What would you do? I said, the first thing I recall doing was pulling the head off of an, of not, a, 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 either a late, 40s or very early 50s Pontiac straight eight flathead. And it had like, I think, 48 head head bolts, head studs in it. And they had me, we said, we're going to do a valve job on this thing. Well, back then you had to break those things down and decarbonize them all the time. You know, they were flathead, flathead uh, eight, a uh, straight eight. And uh, so, you know, Working those head head bolts off of the, the or the cap nuts off off the studs was a laborious job, but give a seven year old a wrench and tell him to do that, you know. You if I could get it pulled loose, you know, I can I can get them off and everything. So I told my uncle Andy, I said, "Well, we did a valve job on a 
on, on Uncle Joe's Pontiac. He said, a valve job. <laughs> he said, tell me what you did. Well, the car's out back in the shop. Come on. <clears throat> and so, I, you know, I'm showing him what I did and everything. He said, what kind of tools do I have you use? I said, use this, you know, which I held up a, a, a crescent wrench, adjustable crescent wrench. He said, you took all them head bolts off that crescent wrench. I said, oh, yeah. He said, come over here to the toolbox. So he goes over and he finds a ratchet and he finds a socket. He says, you should have been using this. I said, I said look, look at those nuts. See, see how they got indentions on them that, that where the crescent wrench wasn't fitting right? I said, yeah. He said, this is why you use this. Plus, you got a ratchet here. I said, wow. Yeah. <laughs> you know, a whole new world so anyway, for you. Yeah. So anyway, so I, I do that and then, you know, then they... They pulled the valves out, but they had me take a wire brush and gasoline and take a, and, and and get the carbon off the back of the valves. Then they then they put the valves back in guides and had me get a little lapping paste, and I was hand lapping these damn things, you know. They were like, man, I was in heaven, you know. And I didn't really know what a valve was, but I just knew it was something important. So Uncle Andy, he said, well, tell me what this. So anyway, so he brought over. I still got it. A 1947 Motors manual, and back then the mat the, the the workshop manuals were printed by this company called Motors, and they had every American car you could think of. Going back, you know, the 1947 manual you know covered the 20 model cars. He says, "Here's what you're doing. Here's here here's the way you do it in this manual. I want you to study this manual." So I said, man, this is really cool, you know. So I'm studying this damn manual instead of doing my homework. <laughs> and and uh, the manuals back then not only had had the, the how to fix, they also had a whole front section of about 300 pages, 200 pages of automotive theory. Interesting. I mean, you could, you know, you know, they were expecting – they expected more out of people back then, I guess. You know, I don't <laughs> That's know. That's a good way of putting it. You know. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I would read all that. He was he would outline where I should read. And hell man, it all it's like a light bulb coming on. And I related that to my little model airplane motors and, and, and they had built me a golf cart and I, I mean a, a go-kart. So it, it had a three and a half horse Briggs on it, and I learned how to manipulate that damn thing and uh I remember taking the head off and rubbing it with sandpaper on glass, get a little more compression on that flathead, and uh, took the air filter off and built a little velocity stack for it. You know, I'm talking about 1956, 57, you know. And so I got a real interest in um, high performance. And my uncle, who was the merchant marine, when he come home, he had a friend called Mike Muscari. And they dirt track race cars, and they had they had a car called the Muscari Special. And when I got a little older, my grandmother would let him carry me to the races. And uh, and I was watching that damn Muscari Special and watching what they were doing and jetting the carburetors and setting the timing and and everything. And so I go to my book and look at all that. Hell, by the time I was twelve years old, I knew something. Yeah, you know. Yeah, let's pause. I knew something. The Muscari Special. So yeah, the Muscari Special. Was okay, it, we were talking scary? about. 
Muscari. No, I'm saying was Mike Mike Muscari. Okay, right. And the Muscari family here in town was a prominent tape. But anyway, that sprint car, and they were racing over in West Memphis, Arkansas at the time. Uh, it had a flathead Ford in it, and little little short zoomy pipes and. Before you cranked it up, man, it sounded like God fighting the devil, you know. But uh, that fascinated me as a, as a child and everything. And the uh, new V8 small block Chevy, the 265, had just come out. But those were expensive at the time to find. You'd have to find a wreck, and even if you found a wreck to pull the motor out of one, the Salvage Yards wanted back then a lot of money for them. They eventually got one. And there was a speed shop here in town called Montgomery Speed Shop down, down, downtown. And they, they had uh, Clay Smith cams and Stromberg 97 carburetors and, and, uh, and uh, magnetos and stuff. And they would go over and buy that stuff. And I watched them put that stuff on, on that small block. Man, it was just, it was amazing. That small block would just haul butt, man. It was 265. Eventually they bored it and stroked it. And it was ended up being 331 cubic inches. And of course that track over there in uh, West Memphis, which is still in operation. I think it's the longest operating dirt track in the United States. And, uh, and I'd go over there with them and watch them, and and uh, they let me do things like change spark plugs, you know. When I got to where they would, I, they let me change the jets and the carburetors and stuff like that. But I was studying all this time. I was reading. My my, my uncle instilled this into me that that if you go to ever advance yourself, you got to have education, you know. So, and I was just a school kid, you know, going to school, and they didn't teach, you know, mechanics was a was a something for high school, you know. But anyway, but I got, I understand, I understood how a cam worked, I understood how to degree it. When I was 12 years old, I could degree a cam. And uh, with, a, with, a, with a degree wheel and, and uh, back then we, we, we didn't have any dial indicators around, but we did it with uh, field gauges. We rotated around the valve, started to move and, we, and everything. But uh, got to do that. And the motorcycle bug hit me at about 11 years old. They were, they were, one of my uncles had brought home a 1952 Triumph. It was a 500, I think it might've been a military surplus. It was a flathead. And uh, man, I saw that thing. And man, I'm thinking, boy, if I had that, that'd be my ticket to freedom. You know, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> of course, you know, I was 11 or so, but at, at, at that time you could get a motorcycle driver's license for five horsepower or under with a, I think a five mile radius of your home at age of 14. Yeah, it's like a moped license. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, you could ride anything up five horsepower or less, okay. you know. And uh, so anyway, so they, they, they got that Triumph running. And I could get on it. And, um, and I'd, we had a pretty big yard, and I could ride around the yard and everything. Then my older cousin, actually it was my uncle who was mentoring me. His oldest son was like 17 and bought a brand new 
Trap T100. And man, he had megaphones on that thing, and he would come over the house, and I'd hear that thing, and look at that, all that glittering polished aluminum and chrome and that megaphones, and uh, and I couldn't let my grandmother see me, but it, but he'd sneak me on back, and we'd go riding, you know. And man, it was it was fantastic. And then as luck would have it, I guess I was probably seven or eight years old by, by, by then, a motorcycle dealership moved in three doors down across the street from, from where I was living. Where was this on? Where was this? Chelsea. I lived at 645 Chelsea, the corner of Thompson Chelsea, which was a very nice community back then. Yeah, it's, 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 it's different now. Yeah. yeah. But it was, you know, it, it had residential and commercial. It was, it, was a little, it was a little, almost a little town. Curly Downs put a Triumph shop in there. He sold Triumph. Velocet, Panther, and BSA, and Zundap. And the Zundaps were the small, some of the Zundaps were the smaller bikes. But man, and my, and, and my, my uncle knew the guy and carried me down there. And I got to where I'd go down there and just kind of hang out. And I'd want to sit in them motorcycles. And he would, he'd always run me off. He's scared. I guess he's scared I'd knock him off the side stand and kill myself or something, you know. But anyway, I'd go down there and, and it was, what it was, it was an old, one of these old big homes that they had converted into. A, you had a ramp up up to the porch and the living room was the, was the showroom. Oh, wow. A couple okay. of bedrooms yeah. with the workshops and had hardwood floors. And, uh, but it was fascinating and it had that smell. Yeah. You know what I mean? I do. I look. I know when you say that, because as soon as I walked in your garage, I hadn't been here for a while, but it's- Where you're looking at, what, 70 motorcycles yeah. up, up here, you know, and, and uh, but- I know what you mean, yeah. But it had that smell, man. Yeah. You know, it's that smell of the oil and the rubber, the tires and the leather of the seats. And man, it, I mean, it, 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 it hooked me. So finally, I, I was down there one time, I said, Mr. Downs, I said, if you'll let me come in here and work for you after school, he says, will you let me sit on these motorcycles? They had sidecars on some of them. And he said, I'll tell you what I do, son. He says, you come in here and clean everything up, empty the garbage. He says, take a rag and get the oil off the floor. Man, you know, all those bikes are just leaking like, like a seal, you know. He says, yeah, I'll let you sit on some motorcycles after you do the job properly. And, uh, man, so I, man, after school, I was there, man. He, he stayed open until six. On Saturdays, he was open all day. You just couldn't wait to get there. I couldn't wait to get there, man. And, and I was, I was swapping up and I was set there. There was one particular bike I remember in, in particular was a, was a Panther 600 Sloper that had a, that had a, had a sidecar on it. I don't recall what sidecar it was. The only reason it was a Panther because it had a, the logo on it, but they had a they had a poster on the thing. They had a panther. It showed a panther clawing, and that made an impression on a young child, sure. you know. And so I sat on that thing. Then when I got a little older, I got to where I could clean the bikes off and wax them. And buddy, that was a big deal. Then I then then by the time I was 11, 12, he let me change oil. He showed me how to change oil. Well, that was a nasty job on them bikes, and those bikes were always filthy. Yeah, those, I mean, no oil filters or anything no, on those uh, back then. No. no. It's just, you know. 
And anyway, and uh, and then he, uh, he he found another location and moved. It was out of my out of my range of bicycling or walking, and so I. But I later found out that his son is the Honda dealer in Little Rock, Downs Honda. Now they may be gone by now. I first became a regular customer with Boxer 2 Valve a few years ago when refreshing an R90S. William and Edward Plam's video repair series, well, that was a go-to reference. It made that job and repair session much easier and really an enjoyable process. Boxer 2 Valve carries only the highest quality parts, mainly manufactured by OEM suppliers, so the fit is perfect and the repair, well, it's done just one time. Fitment and applications for all parts are clearly listed. To quickly find what you need, you simply enter your year and model of your bike and you'll see only the parts that fit. Shipping, that's always fast with most orders going out that day at 2 p.m. and shipping is available to all parts of the globe. Boxer 2 Valve carries a wide variety of premium special tools and maintenance items, many of those unique to their catalog. William and Edward and the team at Boxer 2 Valve are Airhead fans, and as they say, with a passion for simpler times and uncomplicated machines. Check them out for all your parts needs, Boxer2Valve.com. That's the number two, Boxer2Valve.com. And then anyway, so I decided I wanted a motorcycle. And so I had a friend that was 14, and he had a Sears Allstate poop moped, just like that one over there. And this was 1959. So I told my mother, I said, I want one of them things. She said, you, you can't, you know, you can't have a motorcycle. And uh, my grandmother said, well, he's always down there at that shop, you know, and everything. So. Uh, I guess I was 11, and that's the year that my grandmother passed away. We were sitting in a restaurant. Porky's Barbecue, having a barbecue, and she fell over dead right at the table. And so that changed everything. I had to, my mother had since remarried and was living out east in East Memphis on Avon Road and Walnut Grove. And back then, you know, the city limits was. That was way east back then. Yeah, Highland was the city limits. Yeah, you know. yeah. But anyway, so I moved in out there, and that was a that was just a, such a culture change for me, you know, and everything. And uh, but anyway, she said, "Okay, if you you got to pay for it yourself." So I sold Coca Colas at Crump Stadium during the Memphis State and the high school football games, and in one year, I got enough money. $179.95 at Sears to buy that damn thing. So let me ask you about that. So that was you were selling Cokes in the glass bottles, carrying them around? No, no, they 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 wouldn't let you have glass bottles. They 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 had a, a vendor area and they would give you Cokes in a in a wax cup with ice in it, mm -hmm. didn't have a top on it. And um, they would sell you Cokes and I think an orange drink, orange aid or something, you know, uh, orange crush or something like that. But you could sell the hell out of them things. And I also had a job uh, work, working temporarily after school at a big hobby shop here in Memphis that I could ride to. And um, 
helping sell model airplane stuff, which I was pretty good at. That's a whole nother story. But I, I, I won the Mid-South Junior Combat Championship flying new control that. airplanes with, with, with their motor. I was mixing my own nitro fuel up and everything. That's another, that's, that's a story for another time. Okay. All right. yeah. But, um, you said you got the money. But anyway, I got the money, so I got my uncle to carry me down to Sears to buy that thing. And uh, the guy said, you know, I said, here you go. He says, well, who's going to, who's, who do we put the title in? I said, put it in my name. He said, you're too young. I was 13, 12 or 13 and everything. And, and he said, I said, well, Mark will do it. Mark said, no, your mother's going to have to do that. I ain't doing that. And so I said, oh, no. And so I said, well, told the salesman. I said, uh, he was he was young fella, you know, probably in his 20s. And here I am, some, you know, little punk kid, you know. And uh, I said, I'm going to bring my mother down here. It's got pedals on it. It's got an engine on it. It's two-speed hand shift. You tell her that that motor is to help. You tell her it's a bicycle and that motor's to help you go up hills. <laughs> and he said, well, I said, you won't make the sale. You better do it, you know. <laughs> and I was a pretty big kid for my age yeah. and everything. But uh, anyway, so my mother comes back and, you know, and everything. I said, I said, uh, Come on, you got to sign this title. For what? We got to sign a title for it, for a bicycle. I said, it's just a formality. They won't sell it to a, to, a, to a guy my age. So we go down there, and she's looking at that thing. She said, that thing's got a motor on it. I said, that's to help you go up hills. It's got pedals. You got you to pedal it, you know, and everything. And she looked at the salesman and, says, and, she says, and she says, what's that motor for? He said, well, it helps you go up hills. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so I got it. And, and I couldn't get a license for it until I was 14, but I could drive around it. Hell, that was rural back then. Yeah, right. And uh, Avon was a gravel road. And man, that thing would go 30 miles an hour as fast as it would go. But that was, that was amazing, you know. But anyway, and uh, there it is right there. Wow. You know, but. Um, I didn't know you had it. That's not the same one. Not the same one, no, but I bought that at Barber Vintage and everything. Had to pay out my butt for it, too. <laughs> But uh, but I had to have it. But um, yeah. so anyway, so at that thing, then my cousin on his Triumph wrecked it, and when he wrecked it, he somehow knocked a hole in the oil tank, got up on the thing, and rode it back to the house before the motor seized up. It was leaking oil, and he broke. He he had broken, fractured his pelvis. And his and his cervical on his on his thing and and boy his his dad was not happy and mother not happy and he said you got to get rid of that bike so guess where it ended up over at my uncle's garage <laughs> the other uncle you know the you know so everything that thing sitting back there I said what are you gonna do with it David he says nothing just gonna sit here I said can I have it. He said, "Yeah, you can have it, but but you got but but it's not you know the motor's ruined. It ran out of oil. That's okay." So I'm 13 years old now. So anyway, <laughs> I, I I don't know where I got it. I think I I think I sent off for a manual from Nichols Motor Motors from an advertisement 
in the back of Cycle World magazine. And Nichols was a big tripe distributorship up in Canada. And anyway, so I, I sent a postcard up there. You know, there wasn't no calling on the phone back then. Anyway, and I think a workshop manual was a dollar fifty, and the parts manual was a dollar fifty. I sat and got it, and I pulled that motor down, and my uncle was helping me. And but it had British standard tools, Whitworth wrenches, and none of the American stuff would fit. And I knew it was British standard because I was reading in there, you know, and everything. So I caught So anyway, so I write another note to Nichols that I had to buy a wrench and socket set. And back then it was like $8. You know, so hell, I told my mom, I said, says, uh, my birthday's coming up. I need some tools. So she, she gave me the money to get it. And I pulled that thing down, laid it all out. And uh, he had. Lost oil, so so the rod bearings were shot. The the, uh, the crank needed to be be ground. The the it seized up in the bore. So anyway, so I huh? It wasn't ruined. It wasn't ruined, but it, but it was yeah. pretty bad. So I got my I loaded all those parts up. I said I said Uncle Joe carry me over to Mister Down's motorcycle shop. So I come walking in there with this box. He looks at me and he said, "What have you got?" I said, "I got my cousin's trap." You remember my cousin Dave? He said, yeah, I thought he wrecked that thing. He said he did. And so anyway, so he he gave me a real good deal. And uh, he he, uh, he had the crank ground. They bored the cylinder. I did my own valve job on it. Good enough to make it run, you know. And uh, after about a year, um, it ran. I got it back together. It didn't run good. But, but it ran, and uh, headlight was smashed on it. Tank had a big dent in it. It was very similar to that one right there, that oh, blue okay. one. Yeah. That's a T100 right there. And uh, so anyway, so I was riding that thing around my uncle's downtown because I was living out there now and everything, and I, I couldn't dare bring that big motorcycle out there. And I was riding it around and uh, just – up and down the alleys and everything. You know how they got the alleys and I was riding up and down the alleys. And one day the police got me said, says, uh, you got a license to drive that thing? I said, no, sir, I'm just testing it out. I just finished working on it. And he's in an alley and he took an interest in it. I think he might have rode a motorcycle himself. He said, don't you get on the street with this. He said, you're not old enough. And, uh, and uh, I said, okay, so anyway, so. I turned 14 and got a got my moped license. I got that tripe going good enough to ride it, and I got my cousin to get a license plate for it. Well, all my buddies were riding little Honda 50s and Zundap and JBs and the little small Ducatis. Hell, I was riding that damn tripe. You know, and I could crank it. You know, we all decided we was going to go somewhere out Whitehaven where we weren't supposed to be. And we, we were out there getting filling, filling gas up. And I was sitting there pumping, and I, you know, and I was, you know, not, you know, in vain. So a Tennessee Highway Patrolman was out there at the service station. 
I later found out he would come there and drink coffee and drink a Coke and call in his reports. He comes walking out, looking at everything, and he went up to one of my, uh, Tommy Sammons. He had a 150 Honda, and he was 15 years old, and that was too big. But they would put a throttle restrictor on it, and you kind of fudge by, and that mother buddy had a Honda 50, and that buddy had a Ducati or something like that. Not, or something, I don't know, but, but. Anyway, so he's looking at all of us, and he says, well, let's see y'all's driver's license. And we, we show him the driver's licenses. And he looked at me and said, Avon Road, where's that? I don't recall Avon Road out here in Whitehaven. We's out Whitehaven. And I said, oh, it's over that way. He goes to his car and gets this damn thick book out and starts looking. He says, son, that's 25 miles from here. He said, that's out in Shelby County, east of Memphis. What are you doing out here? I said, where are we going to? I forgot. We were going out on Highway 51 to look at Hoyt Wooten's bomb shelter that he had built. The guy on WREC had his big bomb shelter, and he was letting people go in and look at it. And we were fascinated by that, you know, Cold War and all yeah, that stuff, exactly. you know. Yeah. So he said, well, you're, he says, and he, he said, he said, I know that motorcycle's too big for you. He said, you're not going to be able to go. What's your, what's your phone number? And I said, you know, mutual 37102, you know. So he called, my mother answered the phone. And he said, I got your son out here, and he's on a motorcycle that, He's too far away from home. He said, he's on that little old motorcycle that far? He said, man, this is a big motorcycle. And she didn't know what it was, you know. So anyway, so make a long story short, she had to come out and get us. And she went by the, the my stepdad was a commercial contractor. They had a, they had a pickup truck and some stuff. So we had to load the truck. And he had to watch, watch that truck get loaded, that bike, and go back home. Man, my mother blew a damn fuse. What are you doing way out there? Where did you get that big motorcycle? That looks like the one David had. I said, well, it's kind of like it. You know? <laughs> and uh, anyway, finally I got 16 and was able to, able to ride it and everything. And then I got a job working at Memphis Motorcycle Company. They were the Norton Matchless, Famous James, Ducati, an Indian dealer. Well, the, where where was that? Summer Avenue, Summer Summer and uh, Bingham. Okay, and the building's still there. The Magliani's, great great fine people, and uh, so uh, I went up there. Of course, I was playing music by that time too, you know, and everything. So. And uh, so I went up there, and I got I set my eyes on a 750 mattress that they had on their showroom floor. So anyway, so I went up there, and they they gave me a job working because I had experience, you know. And we still had people riding Indians back then, you know. That was you know the last Indians sold out of there around 52, 53, and we still had people coming here for Indians getting you know getting tune ups and oil changes, and uh, so uh, hell I got to work on them. But man, I got to work, I got to do minor stuff to the Norton, the big Nortons, Norton 650 SS, the Norton Atlas. 
And man, that was something. To, but I wanted that 750 matchless. See that blue one? Yeah. That's it. That, that's yeah. the bike. That's it. And uh, G1545 turned out to be a very rare bike. They only made 197 of them. What, and what year is, is that? that? That's a 63. Wow, you've had it that long. Yeah. Wow. And uh, it's restored now. Yeah. But uh, Same color? All original. And anyway, so I worked there, got me enough money to buy that thing. Had about 12, 1,300 miles on it. I was already going to uh, White Station. I was in uh, junior high, I guess the ninth. Ten. Wait, have an have old jar when, when you're 16. I'm going down Poplar Avenue. A woman in a ramble pulled, pulled right out in front of me, and I hit her, and I foot flying through the air, and that bike fell over, and it bent the frame, and it tore my knee up and tore my, I couldn't even find my shoes and everything, and man, my mother just, okay. oh, mercy, you know. But anyway, I got it, and uh, it was insured, but the woman had insurance, and I gave her a ticket, a 16-year-old girl just been driving two weeks, and uh, and I wasn't paying attention because I could avoid. I was probably watching some girl walking down the street or something. I, uh, seems like I remember what I was doing. And uh, but anyway, but uh, they fixed it up here. Memphis motorcycle, you know, with the insurance and everything, you know, put a new frame under it and everything. And I rode that thing for a long time and. Uh, then uh, as soon as I got out of high school, you know, the music thing was picking up real good, and, and we, the band I was working with, we, we, were, we were signed to Gold Wax Records. Clinton Clunch, if you remember him. But, uh, I don't, know. Remember Gold Wax? I don't, know. Yeah, look it up. And uh, so anyway, so we, we all graduated high school, so well, that say, summer. You're playing bass, too. Playing bass, yeah. So we hit the road. We're playing. We got a booking agent here in town, and, uh, and we're making pretty good money. And uh, that goes on and everything. And then, then it, it, you know, it expands and everything. And I was doing pretty good. And my mother said, "You know, you need to think about what you're going to do." She said, "You didn't want to go to college." She says, "This music thing ain't going to last forever." A little bit I know. A little bit she know. Said, you need to think about what you go to. I said, well, I, want, I, want, I want to open a motorcycle shop. She said, you can't make any money in a motorcycle shop. I said, well, I can. Look what I've made already and everything. So, you know, make a long story short, the, the uh, fall of 69, I had a friend that had that was working at one of the local speed shops here in town and rode BSA. He's a real good mechanic and a drag racer. And... Uh, I said, Bill, you, you need a job. I said, I got a little money saved up. I'm going to open this motorcycle shop. I want you to run it when I'm not here. Okay. That was on, was that on Summer Sunday? Avenue. Well, it was actually in Fraser on Whitney Road at the time. Okay. We rented half a B&B Custom Automotive building, and it had, a, it had a bay about twice as big as this room you're in here now. Now, you were doing just service or service and sales? I didn't. I didn't have a dealership. We were. We were. We were buying used bikes and selling okay. them, but but mostly service, and we're doing pretty good. I was also working on British sports cars, and uh, so anyway, so 
um, finally, it, the business was expanding, doing well. I was still out in the road playing, but we, we uh, had a chance to get some dealerships. So we got some dealerships, moved up on Summer Avenue. And uh, I came off the road in 71, had a, didn't been playing really well, had a for money. That's when I bought that Jag right there. Wow. 1970, you know, so uh, um, car had a window sticker of $10,300. 1971 Jaguar 4.2 fixed head coupe, the last year for the fixed head coupe, not a two plus two, you know. So anyway, I got that and everything and uh, We've teamed up with the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America to offer a special membership deal for our listeners. Now, before you think, wait a second, Darren, how much is this going to cost? Let's just stop right here and say it's free. This is a complimentary one-year digital membership for Airhead 247 podcast listeners. The MOA has a goal of adding 200 new members over the next several months. That's a lot. But I think they can reach that goal with our help. By supporting the MOA with this offer, you're also supporting this program. And let's say this again, it is free of charge. Visit 247.bmwmoa.org and complete the online form using the activation code AIRHEAD247. That's easy to remember. You'll receive your free one-year digital membership, and that will give our program credit for referring you. Or go to the description section of this podcast. We've got a direct link right there. Membership in the MOA offers discounts at hotels, a monthly magazine, great deals on roadside assistant programs, plus a fantastic network of BMW owners that share your passion. All this, plus you're supporting our efforts here with the podcast, bringing you unique insight into the world of the 247 Airhead. That website, once again, for your free one-year digital membership, 247.bmwmoa.org. Use the code AIRHEAD247. Thank you very much for your support. Then we were going. I was starting to get a little weary of the road, and the motorcycle shop was doing real well. well before I want, to, I want you to backtrack a little bit before we get too far in the timeline. One of the things I wanted to talk to you, you mentioned... Uh, you're out on the road playing music. That was in, as you said, 68, 69, into 70, 71. I graduated 67. <clears throat> but well, I want you to talk a little bit about, I, you mentioned this to me a little bit over the years, but I think it bears uh, a little discussion here. Tell me about Memphis in 68 when King was shot, uh, when Kennedy was assassinated. You're, okay. na you're navigating... As a white musician, you're navigating the world of interracial, exactly. hanging out with guys exactly. and stuff. Tell me about that. I was, uh, about that time, I was playing in a band called the Memphis Charms. And that was a mixed band, wasn't it? No, no, but not yet. Okay, all right. But we were doing a lot of R&B stuff. And we were approached by a man named Harry Winfield. He was a black gentleman that, that was actually in the Memphis City School System. His band director was also, he was a staff trumpet player and a ranger for Stax. Oh, okay. And he put the barcades together. He came to the charms. He said, I've got 
three really good horn players in my school. I would like to put them with y'all and form a form a form a really good band. I'm gonna mentor y'all. He said, but I want I want I need to have talk with your parents because the, these guys are black and I just want to make sure it's okay with everybody. I said, I know it's okay with my mama because I've already yeah, I was already going down there to the hippodrome on Bill playing, you know, underaged, you know, but you know, but uh Everybody, everybody went together and, and agreed, and we were the, I think we were the second integrated band in Memphis wow. behind Booker T and the MGs. Wow. You know. And what were they called again? Soul Syndicate. Mm-hmm. Being a syndication between the white and the black kids. That was the concept there? Yeah. Well, it was a very successful band. We got in stacks and we did some stuff. And, uh, but anyway, we were, um, I think it was April something we were having rehearsal we played a place called the gateway club on jackson avenue we were having rehearsal about four o'clock in the afternoon i had my the club was closed i had my mattress parked inside the vestibule there and we were having rehearsal it was it was you know nine piece band it was big band you know and all of a sudden first thing we know we were looking and there's about five memphis city policemen come in there and they're all looking around one of them's got a shotgun in his hand he looks up there and said, y'all got to shut this club down. You got to go home. Memphis is under martial law. They just shot Martin Luther King downtown. They're rioting. And we all, we couldn't believe what we're hearing because he was in town for the garbage strike yeah, yeah. for Henry, with Henry Loeb. And my mother and Henry Loeb were great friends. And, and we all looked at him and said, good grief, what are we going to do about this? And everything. And so we said, well, I guess we have to get out of here. You know, so everybody went home. We got home, called everybody, make sure we got home okay. And I'm sitting, I'm sitting at the house out there. City limits by that time and moved out to Perkins. And a buddy of mine who had a triumph called me and said, hey, man, you see all this stuff going on? I said, yeah, it's just the streets deserted, man. It's like a science fiction movie. Let's go riding. Okay. <laughs> so he came over. <laughs> he came over. Yeah. And we went riding all around East Memphis, and it was deserted. Well, we had a buddy named, uh, what was his name? West. I can't remember the last name was West. He lived up behind Popper Plaza in some apartments. He had a sports. We went up there to get him, and Popper Plaza parking lot was full of National Guard, armored personnel carriers, Jeeps. So we rode in there and said, what are y'all doing? He says, well, they're marching downtown. They're riding, they're burning things up. They say they go to march to East Memphis, this is where we're going to stop them. And they were, they were serious, buddy. I mean, there was probably a thousand of them with loaded weapons. I mean, they were ready for war, yeah, wow. you know. And uh, me and Mike, my buddy Mike, was like, we better reconsider this. We better get our ass back home, you know. So, uh, so we rode back home, and man, we, we was watching the news that night. And it was terrible. They got it under control. The next day, correction, two days later, buddy of mine, um, Harry Bryant, I used to put him on the back of my mattress and right around town he had an eight millimeter movie project, movie thing. And we, he would take pictures. He, would, he loved to make whole movies. He says, 
let's go down to the Lorraine Hotel and take and, and take some pictures. I said, well, okay. <laughs> you know, they were kids, you know. You know, however old I was, like 19, 18, 19, you know, back then, 20 maybe. Anyway, so I put them all back that mattress. And we're going down there, and man, there's roadblocks everywhere, National Guard walking the streets. I mean, it looks like something out of Berlin, you know. We pull up down there, we walk up there, and the police sheriff, they put all the, you know, you know, all the blacks up there, and they're all dressed up very nicely walking around. And they had a reef up there where he, where he got shot. And he's taking pictures, and the police from over us says, you boys need to get out of here. He said, this ain't no place for y'all, especially what you're doing. Get out. And back then when the policeman told you something, you did it, buddy. You know. But anyway, we've got that footage, and I've got the footage. Oh, I'll show it to you sometime. Wow, that's amazing, And uh, But it was only about 30 to 45 seconds before they got us. And uh, But it's, it's historic, you know. That was the end, the day after. Two days after. Two days after. Yeah. And, uh, but anyway, but that, that's the thing. But, but anyway. Did that, I mean, what kind of. The band, it broke. What happened to the band? Yeah. It, it broke the band up. Yeah. Because they couldn't. We, we had problems going on the road. We, we had problems. Yeah. We, we found, we didn't know we was going to see problems, but we ran into problems. We almost got our ass kicked a couple times, you know. Because in Mississippi, where we were playing down there at the colleges down there in Arkansas, where, where, you, where, you know, where they can afford to pay a, a good band, they don't take kindly to white kids and black kids hanging together. You remember the Emmett Till thing was only a few years earlier, you know, maybe 20 years earlier. And, uh, and so we, we found that we would have to travel in separate cars and... If we were checking into a white hotel, we would leave them in the car. If we check into a black hotel, because I'm not so many times they have, we would stay. We we would hang out, you know. But uh, but after all that happened, the band never got back together. That's it just it just couldn't it couldn't happen. The the clubs and everything, boy. If, you, if the racial tension was like a boiling pot, man. And uh, but we you know we still go to stacks and everything and do our you know. The little stuff they let they let us do demos and stuff we were still learning you know did that have a blasting impact on on Memphis I mean you're talking about how it was yeah. Im- impacting yeah. you I, I think I, I think among all the older people people of my generation and he, and you got that damn redneck mentality here too you know and uh yeah it did but uh of course, later on, I was playing all the black, you know, you know, I was on the Chipman circuit for a while, you know, and everything. But then it, it got a little better. Like, you know, hell, we played with Albert King down at uh, Trader Dick's on on uh, Madison, which is uh, now called, uh, oh, it's a club down there in, in Overton Square. Uh, the Lafayette's? Oh, we play Lafayette's all the time. No, we were the house band Lafayette's. But no, there's a club down there. I can't remember the name of it. Blue Monkey. Blue Monkey. That used to be called Trader Dicks, and uh, and we played there with Albert King. Okay. And uh, and uh, it was just it was just nothing, you know. We you know he would, you know we we were, you know I was a hired gun, and yeah. you know and and when I wasn't playing somewhere, he you know called say hey, I got a gig, you want to do it, you know. 
And uh, but uh, Albert King, Little Milton, uh, another guy never really did, did much uh, called uh, Richard Go Govan, real good singer. But anyway, but all that all that kind of was starting to fade. That was in the early seventies, yeah. you know, and everything. But but yeah, that 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 whole thing really, uh, and I think that's one of the things that started the demise of Stacks when when. Uh, when when uh, things started going bad at Stacks, because it was a really mixed working environment. It there. was, and uh, and that was the key to this part of the key to the success of it. Jim Stewart and, and Stewart, but him for some reason, me and his wife hit it off real good. She had a Ferrari, and I would work on it for, her. and her kids liked riding motorcycles, and, and I and she bought about six motorcycles from my dealership. So I was always out there, and she was in the amateur radio, and I was too. And, yeah, that's uh, right. I remember your hand tower. And uh, you know, so but anyway, that that that's how that, that that's how all that worked. I want to add. You mentioned when we were going through the timeline there, uh, Norton bikes, and so let's jump forward maybe a little bit here. I was look in your shop here on your wall. There's some great pictures of the Norton drag bike. The drag bike that, that I you built. built. Yeah, and. Is it fair to say, first off, I guess, tell me the time frame on that, and is that sort of what started cementing your reputation as a mechanic? Okay. I was interested in racing. Uh, I had that matchless. It wasn't really what you call a race bike. It was just kind of a bike to ride around on. But I got my hands on a Norton P11 right there. Okay. 69. They had an Atlas engine in it. In a chrome body frame, the whole thing weighed 368 pounds. Pretty light. Yeah. Accelerate pretty hard. Stock, they were a low 14 bike, low 14 second bike, 1420, 1425, 94, 95 miles an hour and a quarter mile, which back then was pretty respectable. Sure. Yeah. And uh, so uh, I got one of those. I said, I'm going to make a drag bike out of this. So I. Did all the things, you know, the drag out, pulled it out. Harmon Collins cam, started really learning how to, what airflow in the head meant, the importance of a valve job, the importance of accuracy and machining. And I had a lathe and I had a mill and I had a little born bar and stuff like that. And I, I could do pretty good stuff. Well, back then there was a big competition with all the shops on who had the fastest street bike. And uh, you, you, you had uh, two tribe shops here in town. You had the BSA store, you had the Harley shop, you had the Honda shop, and the Kawasaki shop. Well, we'd all go out there to Lakeland and we'd race and everything. And I finally got that Norton running in the mid 11s, which is pretty damn fast. And it ended up being the fastest street bike in Memphis. I was even beat, beating the Harley shop. They had a stroke Sportster. And they, they were in the high 11s. The bike that really was the most competition to me was the Kawasaki shop. And they had an H1. Had chambers on it. Yeah. And man, that thing would just fly. And if that quarter mile was another 100 feet, he would have beat me. But I, but that Norton has so much torque, it just 
pulled off the line tremendously. Yeah, I was going to say they're two stroke and uh, generate it quick enough. And uh, he was running. He was running like 1170s, 1180s. I was running 1160s, 1150s. I finally got down 1152, I think. And that was all good until the Kawasaki H2 750 came out. It was game over then. It was done. Now I took this Norton right here. Uh, that, that, that 72 Combat Commando, and it briefly held the C-Stock NHRA national record for 750 stock production class for about eight months, which I set at, I think it was Bowling Green. But anyway, it was in all the wall things and everything, all yeah. the things, you know, you know, and everything. And it ran 1226 at 105. And it was stock. I can say it now. It was a stock. It couldn't get caught. Yeah, you know. right, right. And it was it was the first year for the Combat Commando, which already had a hot cam and the 32-millimeter carburetors and the ports. I went in there and did things that was within in the rules, and I stretched some of the rules a little bit and didn't get caught. And we held that, we held that record for about six months. And then the Kawasaki got it. Then they started changing things up where if you had a push rod bike, you were in another class. If you had a two-stroke, you were in another class. Because they saw the dominance and they wanted to keep they wanted to keep the field pe people racing. But anyway, that's the bike that I did it on right mm -hmm. there. And that was me riding. No wheelie bars or anything. You had to have stock tires. But uh, anyway, so the drag racing bug was, I mean, I was really into drag racing. A lot of a lot of a lot of people were going flat track racing, motocross racing. I raced a little motocross on a on a uh, 360 Montessa. Then later on, I became the OSA dealer and I ran those. But my my heart was in drag racing. I did a little bit of road racing. I built some road race motors. Uh, Triumph BSA and a couple of BMW uh, R75s. I re, if you remember, I restored that Udo Geidel. Yeah, BMW. Oh, you know right. the Butler and Smith want to restore that bike. You know, and we dynoed it. I got seventy nine horsepower. The, no, seventy two horsepower. The rear wheel that damn out thing. Out of a slash five. Out of a slash five. Wow. Yeah, and uh, but uh, that's all documented in a couple of magazines. But uh, anyway, so I was really learning how to develop that Norton motor. So uh, was racing that P eleven. I got that thing down around 11, 10, or 15. So then I said, I need to do something else. So I got a commando, we, we, and uh, Eddie Wilbanks helped me a lot. He did, did all the framework, a lot of machine work and everything, showed me a lot about that. And uh, we put that commando together. And it started off in the very low 11s, like 11, 10, 11, 5. 120 miles an hour, and we were setting records, and we were winning races, but the transmission wouldn't hold. And uh, took that thing off. I got it. Okay. Yeah. Now it is. Yeah. Okay, so that's when I really started getting serious about engine performance. I learned how to design my own cams. Bought a flow bitch. This was all, you know, in the late 70s. And uh, and uh, actually, we, we had a little homemade flow bench. I later bought a super flow. 
But uh, we got a dyno and uh, a Stutzka water break. And uh, I really started, I wanted to, my goal was to win the number one plate in drag racing with a Norton. And the only other person running Norton was my buddy T.C. Christensen. He was running a top fuel twin engine Norton. Now, let me stop you there for a second. For folks who don't know, and there are younger people that listen to this, you're talking about the number one plate. That's what's going to be on the front of the bike, right above the headlight is. Well, on a flat track bike yeah. it is, but on, on the Norton, it, I mean, on, on the, drag bikes, on it's the on the number plate, usually on the wheelie bars. Okay. Yeah. But it, 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 it establishes you as the top dog, right. you know, of all the classes, that, you know, of, of the bracket we were in, which was competition eliminator. The competition eliminator bracket consisted of classes like A modified, A altered, all of that, you know. Uh, F fuel, depending on what you, if you're running gasoline or fuel or, you know, you know, or, you know, nitro. And uh, all of that. Um, but, uh, so, so you're talking about you had the flow bench, the Okay, dyno. yeah, so I'm really getting into understand, you know, really getting into seeing what it's going to take to make this Norton run, you know. And, you know, that, that's a, that's a, 40s design. Start off as a 500 cc. They stretched that thing all the way up to 850. It had a lot of. It had a lot of. It was overstressed. The development had far exceeded the design of the motor. So uh, as we were progressing, you know, we we started. You know, we started to build some pretty serious horsepower, breaking crankshafts, um, splitting cases in two. They just those old cases just couldn't handle it. You know, pulling the Pulling the cylinder studs out of the cylinder and everything, you know. And uh, so anyway, so I ended up making a billet crank for it, one-piece crankshaft. And uh, the only thing we kept was the stock rods. The Norton rods are bulletproof. And uh, then we were, you know, doing things to girdle, girdle the head through the cases. And uh, then we'd go in there and figure out how to weld the cases up to reinforce certain areas and add material. Then we'd have to. Machine all that back straight again because whenever you weld something, it, it, it distorts it real bad. And we were, you know, figuring out how to line board the cases, make sure the, the bearings are right. And the whole thing built a high performance motor. The, the, it, it, the fundamentals are the flat surfaces need to be flat, the round surfaces need to be round, and they all need to be parallel. You know, they all need to, you know, to, to be at, at the proper perpendicular angles to each other, you know, and, uh, so we were working work with the heads and, and uh, you know, try and get the flow up, playing with valve sizes. Got really involved in intake manifold tuning, the harmonic tuning on the intake manifold. That's why you see the carburetor on that drag bike 13 inches from the head, you know, and working with pipe diameters. And uh, we were um, mathematically doing these things. Then we would verify it on the dyno and on the track. And, uh, and then trying to uh, figure out how to make the motor build torque quicker. Uh, in other words, you know, ha ha make the motor spin up faster, you know. And we were doing that with, with, uh, with not on the dyno, but we had, a, we had a, a system where we would mount, take the wheel off, mount, mount it up to, to some uh, trillions, and it would spin like 1,800 pounds of weight, which is what the, the new inertial dyno is doing now. But we would measure the, the amount of time it would take 
for that motor to accelerate between two set RPM points. And uh, there's a company called Digitron that made a lot of uh, electronic devices that had a little hall effect and a 60-tooth wheel. And I could set it, I said, I said, give me, give me an elapsed time between 4,500 RPM and 8,000 RPM. We make, we make changes mostly on the exhaust pipe and cam timing to um, get, get, shorten that time down. So if the motor would accelerate harder, in other words, produce torque quicker, we get to the, the quarter mile faster, you know. And, uh, and although a lot of bikes that we were racing had more horsepower, very few had had the torque we had. No, was anybody else running in Norton? There was a couple of guys running Norton's. A couple of guys at well, there was a real big trot contingency there, with uh, with uh, Wilson out of uh, Big D Cycle, and he he set all the Bonneville records, you know, and he was really good, and they were running some of the Tridents and some of the Bonnevilles, and uh, but we fortunately managed to outrun him, you know. But he was a worthy competitor. But most of our competition was Kawasaki, Suzuki, and Honda, and some of the big Harleys, okay. you know. But, uh, but uh, and when I talk about Honda, I mean, one, one particular time, Honda, Honda North America produced, brought, brought a, 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 a modified Honda four-cylinder to, to the race in Houston, and put it in our class, and I would never put all my eggs on the table at one time. Sure, sure. And uh, the bike was capable of running in the high nines, but I would never let it do that because we wanted to keep keep a little keep sandbag going. back there for, exactly. for qualifying yeah. and record runs. Well, they showed up and they said they'd go get the record. I went over and talked to them. They didn't know who I was. I said, oh, I see, I see you're running uh, F Altered. Yeah, we're getting a record, record soft. I said, yeah, it is. I said, but that bike can run a lot faster. Well, we don't think so. I said, okay. So anyway, so, so anyway, so they went out and made a run. They ran like something like that. I said, I said why don't y'all change over? That bike, it was, it was able to run in several classes due to, due to the configuration of the frame and everything. Why don't you change over to F-modified? Then you could stay in the race. What do you mean stay in the race? Very arrogant. You yeah. know, they had the 18-wheel there and everything. I said, because that Norton belongs to me, and if I pull up next to the line to you, my rider, I'm gonna, I said, I'm going to unleash holy hell on you. I said, you ain't going to come down here and steal my record. Because I was, I, was, I was in line for number one play. And so they just laughed it off. So I told Bowler, I said, Alan, go out there. I said, man, just, just let her rip. We're going to sacrifice this class. I said, but when you go past them, pull the clutch in and rev the motor up a couple of times. That's funny. So he takes off. And, man, we're about the eighth mile mark, and they're probably around 20 yards behind us. Alan just sets up and lets them catch him. Rev the motor up and takes off again. We come back. They packed up and left. Didn't say a word? Didn't say a word. Packed up and left. Never saw them again. But anyway, but that was in That's Houston. That was in Houston, Texas, back back in the eighties or something like that. But uh, So you ended up with the number one plate. We ended up with number one plate. Yeah, we, we were we were we ended up with the number two plate in eighty three. 
The only reason I couldn't get the number one plate was because we kept the motors producing a lot of torque, a lot of power. The transmission couldn't hold it. Man, it was a crapshoot where that thing would even air shift. But most time, it would, it would, it would, uh, the transmission would fail, the lace shaft would fail, the gears would fail. And, and we were sunk, but we but we won enough. So I said, we got to do something drastic. So me and Eddie put together, I said, a Kawasaki Z1 has a great transmission. I said, it's got the right ratios for drag racing. I did all the, I did all the math. It, it, it put the gear changes, pushed me right where I need to be in my torque band. I said, let's, let's take a Kawasaki gear set and try to make a case and put it behind that Norton. Okay, so we started looking. Then, then, then we we said, "Well, why don't we just take a Kawasaki case, saw the transmission off of it, weld it up, machine it up, put it behind that Norton?" Okay, so that's what we did. And it was actually going to be an experiment to see how it worked. And then if it worked, found we were going to build our own case. But it worked so well, we just left it there. And you know, everybody looked at that damn thing. So you see the Kawasaki, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, and uh, yeah, so we're looking at the uh, at the poster on the wall. It says the Memphis Menace. Yeah, that was the centerfold of Hot Bike Magazine, and also Classic Bike Magazine that did, did a uh, article on it. For those of you who are listening, if you want to see this thing, just you can Google Leo Goff's Norton Drag Bike, and there'll, there'll be pictures come up at, uh, on it and everything. And uh, but anyway, but that transmission made that motorcycle book. We all had built a whole new, Eddie built a whole new frame for it. And, um, and boy, the rest is history. I mean, we, by, in the uh, winning season, we had been low qualifier, set ET and Mount Hour records on the first four races. It was an eight race series. And after the fourth race, we we had won every one of them, set ET mile an hour records, and been, been number one quarter. We had so many points that if we didn't show up for any more of the races, we were mathematically wow. unbeatable. And if, and if you go back and look at the uh, at the old television interviews, uh, they're interviewing Muller, you know my you know Alan who rode my bike for me. They're interviewing him, and he says, and they were saying, well, how does it feel to be you know the fourth race and have it locked up? He says, uh, yeah, we're mathematically unbeatable. He says it on the TV interview. You know, but, uh, That's great. but anyway, so we went on and uh, cleaned that up, man, just, and we won every race that season. And uh, I think we were one of the only people to ever win every race, you know. Well, what kind of doors did that open up for you? I mean, that was, it was amazing. A it big was reputation. It was tremendous. Right? Yeah. Um, man, all of a sudden, instead of me trying to look for sponsors, Snap-on tools came to me, sponsored me. Um, uh, Calgard Oil came to me and sponsored me. All the lifts of sponsors were on the, on the bike there. Um, ND spark plugs, DID chain. Instead of me having to buy this stuff now, they were giving it to me and giving me a little money to, to you know, travel with because it was very expensive racing. Yeah. And uh, if you remember my shop, a week before the race, I wouldn't do anything in the shop except prepare the bike. You're talking about when you lived off summer. Yeah. Yeah. You know, prepare the bike, load the van, make sure everything was right, get everybody together, and we usually take off and arrive at the racetrack 
two days before the race, and me and four other guys would rent the track and get all our tuning down, get get the atmospherics down, get the get the wheel bar down. We learned the surface of the track, you know, get my gearing down. Some some tracks had a little incline to them. Some of them had a, you know, downhill a little bit, you know, and uh, so so that I, so there wasn't any. By the time the race day came around, I was tuned and I was ready to go, buddy. Yeah, I was gonna say, you know, <clears throat> there's you think of drag racing as point A to point B, like you say, what. 10, 11 seconds, whatever it is, it goes by like that. That's right. But what you're talking about here is with not only the motor build, but you go to the track, it's the details, the most minute details are the things that make the difference. Well, I always told everybody, everybody was, you know, when, when, when the TV was, the, you know, TV people and the magazine people were advertising me, I say, you don't win the race at the track, you win the race in the workshop, mm-hmm. you know. You know, everything you do, boils down to anywhere between nine and 10 seconds. You know, everything's gotta be right. He's gotta leave the line right. He's gotta push that air shifter button just right. You know, I gotta have that tire pressure just right. I gotta have that wheelie bar height just right. My timing, my jetting has to be right on. The jetting changes three or four times a day with, with, with relative air density, barometric pressure, humidity in the air. Uh, all that has to play. Now, I got a log book that's tremendous, you know, and um, and I learned what just I learned how to tweak it for whatever had to be done. And then we were always, you know, trying to develop new camshafts, always looking for airflow on the flow bench, uh, messing around with seat angles. It was amazing what seat angles do. Um, you know, compression ratios, you know, uh, Everything is just you don't you don't gain any big torque or horsepower figures in any one area. It's the accumulation of small things. It's the stacking. It works two ways. It goes against you in the stacking of errors, but also goes for you in the stacking of progress. You know, you you find a quarter horsepower here, half horsepower there. The dyno we were using wasn't that accurate, but the the weight thing was much more, you know, and uh, but uh, the, the things like what kind of fuels to use, you know, the racing fuel, you know, that they let you use, and uh, oh, even even down to how you index the spark plugs in the head, you know, and uh, just the little things, yeah, it is. the 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 bell mouth of the velocity stack, <clears throat> tremendous tremendous thing. Um, the reverse cone on the megaphone, the, the length of the reverse cone, the, the opening in the in the end. Uh, trying to, we even got down to trying to get the 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 megaphones under the bike in a low pressure area. Uh, trying to reduce the, to, the trying to reduce the frontal area of the bike. We picked up three miles an hour just by fairing changes and lowering the trying to get the bike low, lower to the ground to reduce the frontal area. It didn't affect ET, but it affected mile an hour. And uh, one, one thing I learned early on, especially on the flow bench, was airflow is not intuitive. You think, well, that looks good. You can't tell a damn thing by looking at a port and saying that it's good or bad. Uh, no, no, you know, another thing is cam. If somebody can look at a cam, oh, look at that cam. How in the hell do you tell what's going on with a cam unless you, unless you really know what's going on with profiling and everything? We came up with some strange cam profiles that worked very well. 
and they, they, they worked in a drag bike situation, but it would never have worked in a street bike. You know, the motor, it just wouldn't work. You know, it was just so damn hard on the uh, valve train. Learned a lot about push rods. Norton, Norton's push rod motor. Learned a lot about push rod materials and push rod diameters. I went from a 516 push rod to a 3.8 chrome molly push rod that weighed more, had more rigidity, picked up four horsepower. Wow, just out of a push rod. Just, just with reducing the push rod flex. You learn a lot about valve springs. The valve train's where it's all going on. Same with the BMWs. I learned a lot about you know BMW high performance off of what I learned. Norton, BMW, Hemi heads, everything's kind of similar. You know, so so I took that what I, what I learned on the Norton, and I, you know, you could apply it to Triumphs, BSAs, BMWs. Uh, I did a little Laverta tuning, and oh, we we set a G stock national record with a. I was a Laverta dealer too for a while, and uh, we we took a, a twelve hundred Mirage set it set a G stock national record with a stock Laverta Mirage, and it was totally stock. And uh, my buddy Lynn Neal wrote it. And uh, but but you learn how to you know timing figures and everything. Norton times the, the commando times twenty eight degrees for top dead center on a combat motor is ten to one. I found out that if I advanced it to thirty six degrees, it would accelerate harder. The motor would build torque quicker. You couldn't run thirty six degrees on a street motor um, for detonation reasons. But we were you know, and I I spent a lot of time. Um, investigating octane ratings on fuel, trying to trying to get the lowest octane rating I could find before we got any kind of pre-ignition or detonation problems to produce the most power. The higher octane burns slower, so you don't build cylinder pressure as fast, so it doesn't tend to, there's a lot of reasons to run high octane fuel, but you'll get more power, more BTUs in the combustion chamber with the lower octane fuel as long as you haven't got detonation. And I experimented when I went to, uh, I went, I, I built up a Hilbert fuel injection and put on the bike, ran methanol in it. And uh, it didn't really go much faster with methanol in the fuel class. I even started playing with uh, nitro and uh, got, got to where I was running about 50, 52% nitro. But nitro's a parts killer. And uh, so I just started running, and, and we were already running on gas. We were running times, and we were running times running gas that the, faster than, than the fuel bikes were running in, in our class. Yeah. And uh, so I, I, I got the records in the fuel class, and they and uh, they went to the tech people and protested me. They said, "He's running in the fuel class with us, but he's not running fuel." He's running racing gas. And they said, well, so? He says, well, we're running fuel. We can blow up easy. You know, nitro is much more volatile. I said, well, okay. They came to me and said, they want, you know, so they got a point. I said, okay. What I got to have? She got to have something that won't pass fuel check. You know, I said, okay, I'll just load it down with propylene oxide. So I just I just started putting about 20% PO in it. I went marginally faster, but, but. I got the, you know, they were always, you know, a bunch of crybabies. <laughs> and uh, especially when you're when you're whipping your butt all the yeah. time on a damn Norton, you know, and everything. They're all spending money on their, on their Kawasaki's and Suzuki's and 
stuff. But anyway, so. That's great. Well, all right. So let's talk a little BMW stuff. You mentioned let's it there. Let's talk. So. Well, some great storytelling there, as only Leo can tell it. And as you heard there, as we faded out, we're going to get into some BMW stuff, but that'll be next time. That was part one of our conversation with Leo Goff. Much more next week. And we've included an email. If you'd like to drop Leo a line, that's in the description section of this podcast. The Airheads 247 podcast is distributed and produced by From Off Productions. Our theme music is from Jimbo Mathis. You can find him on the web at therealjimbomathis.com. Our producer engineer is Jeff Glover. I'm Darren Dorton. Look forward to catching up with you next time.